Mosaic family, we are in a time of global upheaval. One of my least favorite things that I hear people say is, well, things are just so polarized right now, or our country is just going through a really hard time, mostly because it's just annoyingly nonspecific. <laughs> because, like, like, let's be real, states, states around the country are censoring education about race, we're just, we've, we, we, we just witnessed the, the, the invasion of Ukraine and they're, and they're fighting back vi- valiantly. We see, we see a world where people are consistently experiencing economic exploitation. There's, there's the trauma of a global pandemic. There's anti-Asian and anti-black violence that's continuing to happen all around us. In short, the world seems to be falling apart. Sin is running rampant, and not just, not just individual sin. Structural, systemic, and cosmic evil is running roughshod through our hearts and through our communities. And, f- and the response for many of us is fear. Paralyzing fear. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We don't know where to run. Uh, we're going through we're going through a uh, a, a, ser- a a sermon series on John. I'm switching it up a little bit. It's going to change around the order, but that's okay. When I asked our liturgy team this past week what 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 we should talk about this Sunday, I, I, I sensed that there was a there's a need for for comfort, a reminder of who we are and who God has called us to be, a reminder of what true peace is, a reminder of what true justice is, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and in rare form, I'm not, I'm not going to be before you long. I'm going to keep it relatively short and sweet, so under 45 minutes. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27, where Paul explains to us what it means to be the body of Christ. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Oh, hold on. Yeah, it's, it's, sorry, I, I, I turned it off, so it's, you should be. Okay. Yeah, here you go. Okay. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, the New International Version. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed them, has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. 
If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, this passage begins with the hope, the good news that the body is a unit, that though it's made up of many parts, all, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. It's a beautiful, beautiful image of unity, an image of oneness, a declaration that whatever our differences are, we're still one body, that all of these earthly distinctions don't really matter. All that really matters is our unity in Christ, right? Well, it might be a little more complicated than that. And that's because that statement is a lot easier to say than it is to live. And that's, and that's why Paul spends the next 15 verses explaining the ways in which we actually fail to be that body. In fact, even when I mention calls to unity, I'm preaching about unity, like there might be some alarm bells that might go off in your heads because you may have heard calls to unity before. Calls to unity that are meant to suppress difference. Calls to unity that are meant to quell dissent. Calls to unity that are meant to paper over pain. And guess what? Paul, Paul says that those calls to unity are actually contrary to the gospel. And so as you hear these descriptions of what Paul's going to talk about in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 12, I want you to consider where, where your own temptation lies. Consider how these calls to false unity might seem good to you, but actually lead to your destruction. Paul says in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. First point of the sermon, unity in the mouth of some, often means assimilation. Here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that unity is, is uniformity. It's very, very easy to speak about unity as though it means that we're all the same. Paul here is talking about spiritual gifts, but it's also a wider point because our differences are necessary for us to have a healthy body. Our different concerns, the different focuses of those concerns aren't a hindrance. They're a way for each of us to grow. For example, there's some, there's some among you with a holy passion for the training up of children. There are some among you with the holy passion for shattering false adult paradigms. I have a special, special place in my heart for, for, for both of you. The children of the future. Both, both, of these folk, both, like, both of these people are necessary, though, for the body of Christ. It's, a, it's, like a, it's, like a right and, it's like a right and left hand relationship. Some of you are gifted with spiritual gifts of hospitality, of administration, of, of care. Others of you are gifted with gifts of prophecy, perhaps of discernment. 
But if this church were just full of prophets without shepherds, we'd have a bunch of people, a bunch of men and women speaking to edify, but no one visiting people in the hospital after their cancer operations. If, if, if this were a church full only of people with gifts of hospitality and encouragement, it, it would be possible that that egregious sin could continue to fester within our community as opposed to being rooted out in love. If we were all the same, we wouldn't be a body. We would, we would just be a giant disembodied body part. And that's both like weird, grotesque, and useless. And, and as, much as, 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 as much as we may hypothetically think, wow, the world and the church would be so much better if there were just more people like me, we would be wrong. And yet that's often the way that we think. There was, a, there was an article on NPR's website titled, uh, Americans are fleeing to places where political views match their own. And guess what a, guess what a major destination for folks is? Texas. Particularly, Texas is a, uh, is a, is a major destination for, like, for politically conservative people from around the country. But like Austin, uh, <laughs> there's an image of like Austin as uh, a blueberry on the cherry pie of Texas. <laughs> but, like, but, this is, but this is how we operate. It's, it's much easier to be with people who we don't have to argue with. It's, it's so much easier to just be with people with whom we share life stages and experiences and socioeconomic status and cultural markers. And yet Paul is telling us that those things are not as important as the head to which we are connected, Christ. And so we need different body parts with different perspectives in order to see the gospel more clearly because otherwise we become homogenous echo chambers. Unity is not assimilation. There's another temptation in the second half of this text, verses 21 and 22. We confessed it this morning. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Paul is not saying that what the church needs is diversity for diversity's sake. Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, it's a classic about how we, we live in segregated neighborhoods and go to segregated schools because of government inter intervention across the country, not just in the South, but also in the North. The only, the only weakness, I'll say this, the only, the only kind of weakness of this book is that it, it, it ignores kind of the, kind of the, the fact that our, our structures of race are fundamentally meant to dominate and to exploit. So it's not just about like the, govern, the government saying these things, it's that we're dealing with broad demonic structures of exploitation of, and domination. But that's another, that's another point, we, we, we'll get to that later in the sermon. But one, one of the points that, he's, that he makes at the beginning of this book, it's great, is that we use the language of diversity and the language of people of color to soften our history of exclusion. We use the language of diversity to, to forget the fact that like we're operating in segregated spaces. We use, we use the language even, even of people of color to soften the very specific ways in which we have devalued black life, the ways we have devalued Hispanic life, our Asian brothers and sisters' lives, our indigenous brothers and sisters' lives, that we've created these categories in order to dominate and to exclude. 
And Paul is not, just, is not all about getting a whole bunch of people together just to hang out and feel good about themselves for hanging out together. And Jesus didn't die and get up just for us to feel good about hanging out with each other. Remember how the gospel is personal, communal, and cosmic? When we say that the gospel is communal, we're saying that God has called a people for himself, a people that need one another. And so that's the question. Do we live in such a way that we need our brothers and sisters in Christ and that they know that they need us as well? When you, when you, look, around, when you look around this church, do you see men, women, and children who you conveniently sit next to? Or do you see a family who babysits your kids, who cries with you through your grief, who sits with you in the hospital, who calls to check on you in times of darkness, who, who challenges you in your selfishness, who comes over and hangs out with you when you're lonely? See, it's, it's hard for us to communicate our need. But Paul reminds us that we are a people in need. And there are people called to be in our midst to fulfill those needs. Paul goes on to say in verses 22 to 25, those, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. For the parts to have equal concern for one another, we have to recognize that we have different concerns. The rich among us do not have the same concerns as the poor among us, and yet both are in need of care. Both have temptations that the world, the flesh, and the devil have, have tailored for their particular circumstances. Men and women in our midst may not have the same concerns, and yet both are in need of care. Both have temptations that the world, the flesh, and the devil have tailored to their particular cultural circumstances. I could, I could go on. But the point is that Paul is laying out that there are some among us whom the world has deemed weak, and the Lord commands us to honor them. There are some among us whom the world has deemed strong, may not be as much special treatment necessary there. And yet, we are called to care for one another as we would care for our own body parts. And to Paul, this is the absolutely crazy part. The opposite of division is not uniformity, but mutual concern. Let me say that one more time. The opposite of division is not us thinking the same thing. It's mutual concern. That is love for one another. The opposite of division is us giving ourselves up for one another. If one, that's, that's the only way that it can actually be true, that if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. But here's the thing, that's, that's difficult. And what we really wanna say, point two, is that unity means comfort. That's what we wanna say. But, but Paul's framing of the church as a body is profoundly uncomfortable. 
And yet many of the calls to unity that we may hear are not calls to holy discomfort, but rather calls to unholy comfort. Comfort in the suppression of dissent, comfort in the pushing down of the weak, comfort in the silencing of the victim, comfort in the siloing of suffering. In a sense, this is, this is, this is, this is historically why, why, why black churches exist. I've told this, told this story before, but back in the 18th and 19th centuries, when, 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 when black members of churches in which white folks held the power went to their leaders and said, hey, our worship is being actively restricted, the response was not repentance. The response was not, oh, the Lord has called me to love you. If, 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 if you're experiencing these, this, this domination and exploitation, maybe I need to figure out how to stop that from happening. The response was not, wow, maybe I can learn from folks who aren't like me. Instead, it was, let's preserve unity by sending you away. You are a threat to our peace. And so in that, we have a fundamental denial of the unity, of the unity bought for us by Christ. A similar scene happened uh, in South Africa in 1857. A group of white members were re requested from their leadership that they be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper separate from black members of the church. And the leadership uh, acquiesced to the weakness of those asking for the accommodation, and they did so in blatant disregard for true unity. Instead, they sought comfort. Nah, I don't really, I don't really like them. Can they, can they go over there and celebrate the Lord's Supper, the cosmic celebration and symbol of unity of the body of Christ? The, 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 the dissonance. It's just a, little, just a little bit of dissonance. And yet often, for many of us, personal comfort takes the place of right thinking and just action. And really, this points to just... just kind of what the, the, the big hazard that Paul, is, that Paul is pointing to in this passage. And it's that each of these temptations are actually just ways to avoid the difficulty, the uncomfortable difficulty of really being a member of a body. Take another look at verses 15 and 16. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. The ear could say that, the ear could say that about the eye. But the purpose, the purpose is not just to say that some other body part is better. If you look at, if you look at that verse, it's, it, it's okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an eye, therefore I'm not a part of the body. So there, 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 are, there, there are two things going on there. First, there's this assumption that the eyes are the only ones who matter. But then there's also the move that because I'm not an eye, I'm not a member of the body at all. So what's going on there is that these are excuses that we use to try to hide from our responsibility to one another. We say, well, well, I can't do, I can't do this, so let me just back up completely. And so Paul's like, uh-uh, that's, that's actually not how it works. <laughs> you're still a body part. And if you're in Christ, communion with the saints is not an option. It's a reality. Now, that if is important. If you are in Christ, communion with the saints is a reality, 
not an option. If you're not in Christ, there's no, there's no obligation. You don't, now you don't, have, you, don't, you don't have access to the benefits, but there's no, there's, no, there's no responsibility. There's no responsibility on you if you're, not, if you're not joined to Christ. But if you are joined to Christ, with these benefits comes an obligation to one another. This is, this is, this is, this is what we confessed this morning. Oh, Westminster, gosh, just, just, just wonderful. It says that the, and we can even, we can even put it up because we just had it up before, but the saints being united to one another in love have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. It's a lot of, it's a lot of words. What, here's, what, here's what it means. And I'll phrase this in a way that uh, may shock. Set it, so... I know, it's, I know it's in fashion for a number of uh, pastors to say how, 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 how apolitical they are by saying, I don't care who you vote for. Um, I've never said I was apolitical. Not nonpartisan, yes, but never apolitical. And, 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 and here's the thing. I, I really, 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 really do care who you vote for. I know some of you are getting, some of you are getting nervous. It's like, what's he, what's he, about, to, what's he about to do? I do not want you or any of us to vote for ourselves. Remember the communion of the saints. If, if we are obliged to perform these duties for the good of our brothers and sisters and ultimately of our neighbors, that means that we ought never be oriented toward ourselves. And I know already somebody wants to qualify that. And so this is what Paul says. A few chapters earlier, and he says it again in Philippians 2. In 1 Corinthians 10, 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In Philippians 2, 4, he says, let each of you look not to his own interests or her own interests, but to the interests of others. In neither of those texts does our concern for ourselves come first. And we really, really want it to. Oh, we want it to. Even the translators of our English Bibles want it, want it, want it to. And so if you were to look at, if you, if you look at the ESV and the, KG, and, and the KJV for, for, for that verse in Philippians, what it says is, let, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It sounds so much better too, right? Like, I can, I can be worried about myself and then I, can, then I can worry about you. But that's not what the word says. The word says looking not to your, to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That means that life in the body, if you're united to Christ, life in the body means a relentless commitment to our neighbor. I want you to hear this kind of loudly and clearly, that unity does not mean that you forsake who you are and who the Lord has made you to be in order to fit in somebody's cultural project. The gospel does not mean that you, that you toss all that to be, a, to be a part of somebody's cultural project. What the real good news does, the real good news offers you a comfort that can withstand any exterior or interior assault. What the real good news does is critiques and affirms elements of every cultural expression of it. 
What the, what the real good news does is equip you to repent of your own sin as well as to resist the attacks of the enemy. What, what the real good news does is it allays the fear that a real call to unity wells up in you. Even when I was talking about that whole, uh, don't, don't be concerned for your own interests, but, but be concerned for the interests of others, I'm sure there was a fear that welled up in you. A fear that said, if I don't care about me, who's going to care about me? Well, the real good news calls for union before it calls for unity. That is, you have to be united to Christ before you're united to the body. Let's think about it this way. There's a, uh, there's a phrase that's been circulating uh, in our churches for uh, decades. Um, as a matter of fact, I've, 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 I've probably used it I've used it. I've used it myself. Um, it's the language of finding your identity in Christ. And I get it. I mean, we love talking about identities, and it's a great Jesus juke to make. But there's something I want us to think about when we think about the way that we use language. I want us to think about the ways in which this language can often be weaponized. And I'm going to get up in somebody's business, so I want you to bear with me. This language is often weaponized against three populations in our midst. It's weaponized against women. It's weaponized against our non-white brothers and sisters. And it's weaponized against our, lay and our, our, our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. It's weaponized against women. Our sisters are told to ignore the unjust restrictions often placed on them and instead to find their identity in Christ, mostly just to like, not make so much noise about their womanness or the needs of the women in our churches. Just don't, get, get, keep that over there. It's weaponized against our non-white brothers and sisters. I got, I got personal stories here, but we're keeping it short, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put anybody on blast. This is the person who says, hey, stop talking, about, stop talking about race and blackness so much. Stop talking about your, 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 your heritage, your native heritage, your Asian heritage so much. We're all one in Christ. That sounds a lot more like erasure than love to me. It's weaponized against our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters where instead of doing the hard pastoral work of walking alongside folks as we all seek to live in obedience to the Lord's commands, including the fact that sexuality is only obediently expressed in one man, one woman marriage, we instead see our brothers and sisters and say, ah, just don't, just don't call yourself gay. It makes me uncomfortable. Why don't you just be in Christ? We just say as it says in the beginning of this text, look, we're all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slave, free. See, those differences don't matter. Well, brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the lived reality of union with Christ. And the thing about union is that union requires two things. Two things that are then united that are still two things after the, after the union. It'll make sense. Example, marriage. When, when you're united to your, to your spouse, that, 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 that relationship changes you. It doesn't change you into that person. You're still, you're still two different people, but, but you can't actually invest in that relationship without that relationship changing you. And so, when, so, so, so the eternal son of God was humanly conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born, lived a perfect life, was killed brutally, bore the weight of human sin, and got up victorious 
in an act of intervention and of cosmic solidarity, but it was solidarity with a purpose. Solidarity paired with love and paired with power. And, and he didn't just do all of that so we could just walk around and say that we believe in him and then act however we want. It's not what vital union with Christ looks like. He did it so that by faith in him and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are really and truly joined to him in life-giving relationship where he's the vine and we're the branches. And this, this means that not only is he the source of our hope and the source of our peace and the source of our joy and the source of our strength, but that relationship necessarily changes us. It changes our priorities. It changes our tastes. And it is only if that union is real that our unity in the body can be real. You're only a member, you can only be a member of this, of this body that Paul describes if you're actually attached to the head. Another way of saying it is that it's not just enough to be a hand. We've gotta be Christ's hands. Other hands, other eyes, other ears. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no real fulfilling future for that existence. If we're not Christ's hands, eyes, feet. So then the question is, what do Christ's eyes see? Christ's eyes see the oppressed, the weak, the hungry, the thirsty, the disabled, the hurting, the marginalized. What do Christ's ears hear? The cries of the suffering. What, do, what, does, what does Christ's mouth do? It speaks encouragement for the edification of the saints. What do Christ's hands do? They heal. What do Christ's feet do? They run to, to, to the person on the side of the road attacked by robbers, and they walk with folks in the midst of confusion and fear. The question is not first and foremost what body part you are. The question is whether or not you are Christ's. Because unity of the body comes after union with the head. And let me tell you this, it is only when you are united to the head when you are baptized into this body, when you, when you really do drink of the Holy Spirit, that you will know the peace, joy, and power of the Lord. Only then will you have the stamina to fight through a world with potential traumas on all sides. Only then will you have the resources to not live in constant fear when something as terrifying as a nuclear holocaust could loom on the horizon. Only then will you be able to go to the Lord in prayer knowing that it's both the only thing you can do and it's the most powerful thing you can do because the God to whom you pray, the triune creator of the universe, is the one on the throne and there is nothing outside of his reach. That's what we need, brothers and sisters. See, we don't, we, don't, we don't need to be told that our differences don't matter. We need to be told that the Lord actually gave us these differences for the good of the body and for the furtherance of the kingdom. By his resurrection, the Son of God broke into the sinful order and said, I'm shaking, I'm shaking this up. 
And, and when he got up, before he left, he told his disciples, you are my church whom I will build. You are my body. So show the world my priorities. Show the world my love. Show the world my power through your service. That is the call, brothers and sisters. And we will only experience the life-giving unity of the body if we place at the front union with that Jesus. The darker-skinned, poor Jewish man who was, is, and always will be the eternal Son of God. The Lord is on his throne, dear brother and dear sister. And those are some of the most comforting words that we can offer to one another in the midst of turmoil, that the Lord is on his throne. And if you are united to him by faith, if you repent of your sin and turn from it toward him and are shaped by his spirit, then in the end, you will rule with him in real, unbroken, unbreakable, life-giving unity. Not assimilating unity. Not a superficially comforting unity. But in divinely supported other focused unity. When we think about what it means to be the people of God, when we think about what it means to be a beacon of the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us, let's be that people. Let's pray.